Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this is a collaborative effort between the International Waldenstrom Myeloma Foundation, or IWMF, and Cancer Care. And it's been a partnership that's gone on for many years. And today's program is titled Progress in the Treatment of Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia, or WM. And today's program um, is supported um, by Pharmacyclics LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and we want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have many participants on the call today. We, um, there's about 525 participants on the call, and you're primarily from the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. But we also have international participants today from Canada, France, Iraq, Italy, Mexico, Poland, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. We're just delighted to have all of you on the call today. Now, before we begin with the formal presentations, I'd like to ask you just a few questions that um, will help us to understand what you know coming into this program. It'll be, they're very brief, there's five questions, and we'll go through them quite quickly. And the first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand frontline treatment for Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, WM, in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating, five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand treatment for relapsed refractory WM. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand new and emerging treatment approaches for WM. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. The next question is, I know how to manage symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort and pain, including reducing complications in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating, five the lowest rating. The last question is, I understand the importance of clinical trials for WM in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in, the, in these questions. It really helps us to understand more about um, what your needs are going forward as we plan future programs.
now it's really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stephen Ansel. Dr. Ansel is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, Consultant, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, Mayo Clinic. Dr. Ansel will be addressing an overview of WM, including staging in the context of COVID-19, signs and symptoms, and frontline treatment for WM. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ansel. Dr. Messner, thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you to everybody who's on the call joining us. So, uh, as mentioned, my goal today is really to talk about exactly what is Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, uh, importance then of understanding what to anticipate when one has that as far as signs and symptoms are concerned, and then talk a little bit about how and when to get managed for that, uh, that problem and what would be the appropriate frontline treatment. So again, I think just reminding everybody that Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia in essence has two predominant problems. And that then, these two problems, which I'll touch on in a second, really then influence and affect many of the signs and symptoms. So the two problems are a protein, a monoclonal IgM protein that is increased and elevated in the blood of a patient with this disease, and a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate that is present typically in the bone marrow, but could also be in lymph nodes and uh, other sites. <clears throat> what exactly does that mean? Well, when one gets uh, Waldenstrom's, you have cells that were changing from a lymphocyte into a plasma cell as one of the ways to respond to foreign proteins. Those cells then become a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, and that's what infiltrates different parts of one's body. Those cells, by their nature, as they are changing, are making a, an antibody tr uh, that is used to, to attack and, and suppress uh, uh, any infection or other uh, exposures to, for uh, to foreign proteins, and that's an IgM protein, and that then becomes this monoclonal protein that is highly uh, expressed, and there are lots of them circulating in the peripheral blood. So again, I think the important things to know about are the lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, the lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, often present in the bone marrow, and the monoclonal protein circulating in the bloodstream as the two main features that will uh, help us to make that uh, definitive diagnosis. A lot of work that's been done, and particularly by Dr. Trion, who will talk later on the genetics of those cells, have identified for us a number of genetic mutations that are commonly seen in those cells. And this uh, mutation in MYD88 and CXCR4 are sometimes seen in patients, MYD88 in the vast majority of patients, CXCR4 in about 30 to 40% of patients. And those really further help to make the definitive diagnosis. So again, what I want folks to hear is you need a protein in the bloodstream, and you need a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, typically in the bone marrow, to make the diagnosis. So what are the signs and symptoms that you can develop when you have Waldenstrom's? Well, it comes from those two components. The infiltrate in the bone marrow many times will affect the ability of the bone marrow to function normally and decrease the hemoglobin and other components of the bone marrow. The infiltrate can not only affect the bone marrow, but can often affect uh, lymph nodes and the spleen, so you can have enlarged lymph nodes with this disease. As the disease expands, clearly there are more of these cells accumulating and causing symptoms. The other problem is from the protein. So the protein is a large protein. As that really increases in the bloodstream, that results in significant problems with increased viscosity, stickiness of those proteins. 
Very commonly, that stickiness can stick uh, to other cells in the blood, causing anemia problems or low platelet problems, but also can cause issues with sticking to uh, other tissues, causing neuropathy that we'll hear about later, or uh, even de you know, deposited in tissue, causing problems such as amyloidosis and other issues like that. Furthermore, just the thickness of the blood can cause a hyperviscosity problem, which can make one have trouble with your thinking, or make one have trouble with your vision. So many of those symptoms obviously can develop as one has Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. So to the next question, knowing the signs and symptoms, knowing that you have the diagnosis, uh, what is important as far as frontline treatment is concerned? Well, the first thing I think is really important for people to understand is that there is a very vast spectrum of how many of those symptoms you might have. Some people, it was just some mild anemia, maybe that detectable protein in the blood that tipped people off to the diagnosis, but aside from that, they feel completely well. On the other end of the spectrum are people with very low blood counts, lots of lumps and bumps different places, lots of viscosity problems, difficulty with vision, some bleeding issues, confusion. Clearly, those are a completely different picture for a patient to experience. So the first critical question that needs to be asked, especially in this era of COVID-19, where treatments obviously can decrease your immune system, is do you need treatment, yes or no? And the first uh, issue might be is that you might be quite appropriate for you to be observed without requiring any therapy. So there are a large percentage of patients that really just have very low burdens of disease, not a lot of symptoms. Those are people quite appropriately observed without treatment. On the other hand, there may be people, as I mentioned earlier, who are quite sick. They may clearly require treatment. The first question in their case is, is the viscosity at a level where they're at high risk? And if they are at high risk, it's often very important for them to then undergo plasmapheresis, in other words, clearing out that protein to bring the protein viscosity down or the level of viscosity in the blood. Once that's happened, that really would just help with symptoms. You still then at that point would need to proceed to treatment. So again, what I'm hearing, what I want folks to hear is, on the one hand, you may not require any treatment at all. On the other hand, if you do need treatment, excluding the possibility of hyperviscosity is the first step. If you are a patient who needs treatment, maybe you didn't have hyperviscosity, uh, but you still need to undergo therapy, then the treatments that need to be considered are really, the goal of them is to decrease the amount of protein in the bloodstream and decrease that lymphoplasmacytic uh, infiltrate. And really there are two main strategies. Both are highly effective and both uh, really are very appropriate treatments and comes down to personal choice and also a, a discussion with your provider as to what is appropriate for you. The one is a more aggressive approach that's more short term. That's the use of chemotherapy in combination with an antibody called rituximab, typically the use of bendamustine chemotherapy plus rituximab treatment, usually for around about four to six months. Um, the second is to utilize a, a pill, a treatment called a BTK inhibitor, and there are a number of different BTK inhibitors, but the one that most people are most familiar with is abrutinib, and that can be a very effective therapy uh, that is then taken every day for the long term. So both of those are very effective. Both of those responses are very durable. And uh, as I say, this is a discussion one should have with uh, your physician. So with all of that said, what do I hope people hear? That when it comes to treatment, please discuss this with your doctor. 
Do you need treatment, yes or no? And if you do, what's your best therapy? The reason that matters is clearly in the era of COVID-19 infections that are circulating. Um, it's important to get treatment when you need it, but delay treatment if you don't, not automatically treat if you don't. So with that, I'll end and I'll turn it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ensel. That was an outstanding um, studying the context of the program today, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Jorge Castillo, and Dr. Castillo is a clinical director, being Center for, for WM, a physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and associate professor, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Castillo will be addressing treatment for relapsed refractory WM, new treatment approaches, and translating genomic findings into new treatment options for WM. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Castillo. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for that uh, kind introduction. Um, so, I mean, I'm just to kind of following uh, what uh, Dr. Ansel was uh, referring to in terms of treatment options for patients with Waldenstrom's. Uh, conditions uh, are treated. These Waldenstrom's get to be treated with a number of different options, as mentioned previously. And patients do get into some type of a remission uh, after chemotherapy and rituximab combination. There is a time off treatment, uh, usually a few to several years in, in, in best case scenarios. Uh, when somebody is on a, on a BTK inhibitor, on a, on, a, on a pill form treatment, typically those are indefinite duration uh, treatment. Um, at some point, the disease is going to progress. You know, and typically, in, in most cases, um, we know the disease is progressing because the IgM levels started to climb back up. Now, in most patients, um, when the IgM level is going up, uh, most patients are actually asymptomatic from that. The patient's blood counts are still doing very well. The patients are still feeling very well. And besides the IgM increasing, really there is no other symptom or manifestation of disease progression. In those scenarios, uh, we still favor observation and, and without an intervention, specifically because uh, sometimes uh, it takes months and sometimes it takes years for patients to have an increase in the IgM until they actually do become symptomatic enough, again, to need therapy. Now, in, in the cases that were treated because of anemia, anemia is then, then the most likely reason to be treated later on. If the patient had an IgM-driven problem or a neuropathy-driven problem, that is, in most cases, the reason uh, need to be treated in the, in the second and third time around as well. <clears throat> um, so when you know, we see the IgM going up, we watch, and uh, if we get to a point in which treatment is uh, reasonable uh, because the patient is, again, anemic, the patient is, again, symptomatic, uh, for for many other reasons, then we consider treatments at that time. And if the patient were to be, let's say, relapsing today, we will be discussing a number of different options as well. So uh, I would say there are a number of options, and most of these options are actually very similar to the options that were uh, talked about during the initial phase of the treatment. Uh, for example, if a patient receives uh, chemotherapy, let's say bendamustine and rituximab on the first-line treatment, you know, five, six, seven years later, the disease progresses and becomes symptomatic, a reasonable option uh, will be to try a BTK inhibitor in that specific scenario. Uh, the reason we try a different approach in, in, in patients with Waldenstrom's is because um, we believe that if the disease progresses after being exposed to a specific treatment, 
then the disease has some experience with that and then would have become somewhat resistant to that as well. And based on that, we try not to expose our patients to other you know, agents that were previously exposed to. Having said all that, uh, we acknowledge that sometimes the resources that we do have in the United States and Western countries might not be replicated in, in places like South America or Asia or Africa or other centers with uh, lower resources. In those scenarios, repeating the same regimen uh, is not unreasonable, uh, the same regimen that was given in the front line. Um, specifically, if patients have had you know, you know, a good number of years of benefit from that intervention. So then repeating in that scenario is something that actually is, is done very, very frequently. So on the other hand, if patients were exposed, for example, to a BTK inhibitor as a first-line treatment, even when the BTK inhibitor starts losing, losing the response and patients do uh, start uh, progressing and becoming symptomatic, then we can try chemoimmunotherapy uh, regimens at that time and in both scenarios, either BTK inhibitors after chemo or chemo after BTK inhibitors have shown to be uh, of, um, of high efficacy in, in, in patients with relapse disease. There's another group of medications that we have available um, called protasome inhibitors. Uh, those are not chemotherapy agents precisely. Uh, they are what we call targeted agents, and we use those agents, agents also in combination uh, with rituximab. That is another option for patients who were not exposed to protosome inhibitors um, in the first-line treatment, we could then consider to have these, um, you know, to try these medications in the relapse setting as well. Now, um, there are multiple uh, agents, actually, chemotherapeutic agents that could be tried. Uh, Bendamastin is the one that we use the most, but we have cyclophosphamide and then much less commonly fludarabine, for example. Protosome inhibitors, now we do have um, bortezomib, which is a classic one, and carfilzomib and exasomib. Uh, those are available in the United States and sometimes in, in Canada and Europe as well. Uh, some of them, actually, bortezomib might be available in, in, other, in other places as well. And then the BTK inhibitors, and the one that has been you know, around the longest and approved by the FDA for Waldenstrom's isibrutinib, but there are a couple of other agents that are also uh, shown to be very effective and safe in patients with Waldenstrom's, including acalabrutinib and xanobrutinib. So there are multiple options to choose from, uh, and the, the decision sometimes is made um, not precisely because of the efficacy, because all these agents are actually very efficacious, and very few of them have been compared head-to-head to say that one of them is better than the other one. But they do have different side effects, and it's important to acknowledge and review those side effects with the patient so be able to understand, um, you know, what, what is the benefit that we are aiming on these patients um, could obtain from these treatments, but also what potential side effects they could experience, and based on that, make a decision that actually is reasonable. Now, talking about uh, new treatment approaches, uh, kind of moving, uh, you know, beyond of what is already uh, approved and used in, in, in for treatments for patients with Waldenstrom's, that will include uh, a number of treatment options. I mean. Um, BTK inhibitors uh, in clinical trials now are trying BTK inhibitors in combination with, with pretty much everything you would like to imagine. So we have clinical trials using BTK inhibitors in combination with chemotherapy. We have BTK inhibitors in combination with protosome inhibitors. Um, we do have uh, BTK inhibitors in combination with other uh, monoclonal antibodies that are not rituximab. Uh, for example, daratumumab is an antibody in CD38. It's in a clinical trial. Um, and there are, a, a there are other, another, other types of medications um, targeting other pathways. Um, we have a pathway called BCL2 
The BCL2 pathway is one of those pathways that allow malignant cells to immortalize themselves, and they are overexpressed in patients with Waldenstrom's. So there is an anti-BCL2 agent. It's called Venetoclax, which is already approved in the United States for uh, other types of leukemias, but also has been tried in patients with Waldenstrom's, and there are clinical trials now actually combining BCL2 inhibitors with ibrutinib to actually see if there's uh, you know, a synergistic effect and, and trying to make these approaches uh, you know, more potent, uh, and hopefully they will be also very well uh, tolerated. Um, there are other targets that are of, of great importance, um, and, and again, probably Dr. Trion will expand a little bit more on this. Uh, we're looking at pathways such as Iraq 1 and 4, for example. We're looking at the HCK pathway. Um, we're looking actually to target CXCR4, and I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, so a number of different options. We're looking at targeting maybe CD19 and BCMA. So the, the, the armamentarium for, for the, to treat patients with Waldenstrom's keeps, keeps increasing. But the key here, the key message I would say here is clinical trial participation. We will not know if a treatment is actually safe and or effective in patients with Waldenstrom's if the patients with Waldenstrom's do not participate in clinical trials to develop these new treatments. So my message in general terms will be if you have an opportunity to participate in a clinical trial and you think that that is something you would consider, I think that would be a, a very reasonable you know, thing to, to think about. Now, just to finalize, I think I have a few more, few more minutes to talk about how we translate genomic findings into the treatment options of patients with Waldenstrom's. Um, the mutation in MYD88 is a mutation that was uh, described initially by Dr. Trion and he's in our group in um, 2012. And about over 90% of patients with Waldenstrom's tend to have these mutations. And from his laboratory we studies, we have learned that the different ways in which MYD88 mutated cells, you know, survive and use different pathways, including the BTK pathway. I think that's an important translation of understanding the biology of the disease of how can we use a BTK inhibitor with such efficacy, understanding the biology of the disease. The other mutation that we have identified recently, uh, five years ago now, um, is the CXCR4 mutation um, that actually provides an, a supplementary activation pathway for, for malignant cells, uh, and only about a third of patients with Waldenstrom's have those mutations. Um, those patients do tend to present with higher IgM levels, um, sometimes uh, more hyperviscosity problems. And we are actually actively investigating how to target CXCR4 in, in clinical trials. We did a small study with an antibody called Ulocuplumab that we will be probably reporting data later this year on, and we are actually an ongoing study combining ibrutinib with another uh, medication that blocks CXCR4, it's a pill form treatment called Mavorixafor. So there's one of these uh, very interesting genomically driven clinical trials that we think we can you know, use. Now, there are other mutations that we have also identified. Uh, the, one of the ones come to mind is TP53, and we're still investigating what the impact of that mutation is on the outcomes of patients, and obviously we'll try to develop, understand how it works so we can develop the specific uh, treatment options for these patients. And, and with that, I really would like to thank everybody for, for their attention, and I will uh, send back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Castillo. That was outstanding and just a lot of wonderful information for everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Stephen Trion. Dr. Trion is Director, Bing Center for Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia. Um, he is a senior physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, professor of medicine, Harvard Medical School. 
And Dr. Trian will be addressing the important role of clinical trials, controlling treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, including reducing complications, and peripheral neuropathy updates. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Trian. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Steve Trion. It's such a pleasure to be on uh, this program today, and a pleasure mainly because of all the progress that we're seeing being made in Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. I think as uh, Dr. Ansel started us off, these are truly amazing times because uh, the insights we have now gained into the genomics of this disease are rapidly being translated. And uh, I have to say, if you really look at all the other, you know, many other disease groups, this is a uh, very uh, fortuitous position to be in because often, you know, not knowing what the underlying uh, disease causation is, it, it limits our ability to innovate. But here in Waldenstrom's, knowing that the mid-88 mutation can be found in 95% of Waldenstrom patients, that the CXCR4 mutation that Dr. Ansel and Dr. Castillo mentioned is also very prevalent. 40% of patients uh, have this mutation. Um, it gives us really the ability to create new drugs and new opportunities for therapy that are going to be benefiting um, many patients, if not most patients, with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. I want to uh, focus a few moments on the Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, these emerged as novel therapeutics for Waldenstrom's because the mid-88 mutation actually derives Bruton's tyrosine kinase. And uh, this was discovered thanks to the hard work of Dr. Guang Yang in our laboratory, who, as he was uh, looking at the signaling cascades for mutated mid-88, he made a very interesting observation that BTK itself was actually bound in the complex along with the mutated mid-88 protein. And as he went about, you know, um, devolving this work uh, around mid-88, uh, he noticed that, in fact, BTK became activated by mutated mid-88 and uh, worked very diligently with other members in our laboratory and since then other collaborators around the world to help understand how this uh, signaling process happens. Now, as a result of this uh, innovation, uh, ibrutinib um, was developed as the first uh, therapeutic that is now approved for the treatment of Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. And in fact, it was those genomic insights and laboratory insights that um, allowed the FDA to give the first ever breakthrough designation for accelerated approval to, believe it or not, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia of all oncology. So it does show you how when you have very good science, you're able to innovate faster, but also give, you know, the opportunity for drugs to get uh, approved in a much more faster and coordinated way. And we have to thank the IWMF. The IWMF made the investment of uh, whole genome sequencing that allowed for these insights to be garnered. Um, and that, along with Dr. Peter Bing, who also made the money available for whole genome sequencing. But it's because of that investment, you know, we now have a playbook. And it started with ibrutinib, and there's other BTK inhibitors that are being developed. I think many of you have heard about zanubrutinib, 
This is also a terrific drug that's being developed for the treatment of Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Uh, there was a head-on trial, a randomized trial, that showed that uh, zanubrutinib is very active in Waldenstrom's and, in fact, may also have a different uh, safety profile that may be advantageous. Uh, we also know now, because of the work that was done largely overseas, um, about acalabrutinib. This is also another BTK inhibitor, which has shown uh, tremendous activity in uh, Waldenstrom's. And uh, we saw the publication uh, led by Dr. Roger Owen from the UK uh, detailing the activity of this drug uh, in this disease. And not to be remiss, the Japanese have also been developing another drug called tirabrutinib. And this has also shown uh, very, very high rates of activity uh, in Japanese patients with Waldenstrom's. And so we're now blessed with four BTK inhibitors that actually bind to the same site on uh, BTK and uh, are very active. Now, one of the important questions that's coming up these days is what do we do when a patient develops resistance uh, to a drug like ibrutinib or zanubrutinib or acalabrutinib or tirabrutinib? And so there are now these next-generation BTK inhibitors. Um, the one that perhaps is perhaps the most advanced at this, at this point is a drug called pertobrutinib, P-I-R-T-O-brutinib. This also goes by the name of LOTSO-305. And Dr. Michael Wang reported at this last American Society of Hematology meeting preliminary data in Waldenstrom patients on the activity of pertobrutinib in patients who had already seen a previous uh, BTK inhibitor. And because PERTO binds to a different site on BTK, it's able to actually overcome resistance uh, to uh, ibrutinib and the other um, BTK inhibitors that bind at that same site. And uh, he actually showed uh, in 17 patients that were treated um, that they were seeing 60% of the patients respond to pertobrutinib. Pertobrutinib was actually very well tolerated. And so what's important for all of us to recognize is there is going to be life even after patients develop some degree of resistance uh, to these drugs. Now, sometimes we need all these extra, you know, BTK inhibitors, you know, on hand because side effects can be sometimes a problem. Uh, with uh, the, you know, the, the BTK inhibitors. And having the ability to switch over to a different BTK inhibitor that may have a more favorable side effect profile can also be advantageous. So it really opens up the arsenal for us to make these kind of informed treatment decisions uh, and not necessarily abandon BTK inhibitors. Um, the last uh, thing I want to also talk about are the CXCR4 inhibitors. Now, MID-88 is being targeted very nicely with BTK inhibitors as other drugs that we're working on to also drug this pathway. But CXCR4 also represents an interesting opportunity because, as I mentioned earlier, 40% of patients have this mutation. And unfortunately, the way it impacts patients is it makes them sometimes resistant to drug activity, like in the case of BTK inhibitors. We know from both the data from ibrutinib as well as zanubrutinib that if you carry a CXCR4 mutation, your ability to respond and that depth of response and how fast you respond actually all um, become uh, more difficult if you have the CXCR4 mutation. So why not actually target CXCR4 itself? And we did a trial using ulocuplumab. It was an antibody that blocks CXCR4 
we gave it to patients along with ibrutinib who had the CXCR4 mutation, and we were very excited by the results. We're hoping to report these uh, very shortly, but I'm going to tell you, we saw very high rates of activity, very quick responses, very deep responses, and this now has set the paradigm for other CXCR4 inhibitors being developed, such as Movarexifor. This is actually given orally, and you can give ibrutinib orally, you can give Movarexifor orally, and the trial that we're all involved with now actually is examining these two drugs together in patients that have the CXCR4 mutation. So here's an example of, again, being able to exploit a genomic finding for targeted therapy of Waldenstrom's. Um, Dr. Messner also asked me to talk a little bit about neuropathy, and let me just say this, that uh, as we develop, you know, these new therapeutics, particularly the BTK inhibitors, they offer us an opportunity to treat some of the specific morbidities that go with Waldenstrom's. There's a trial with acalabrutinib and um, a monoclonal antibody targeting CD20 that is going to be opening very soon for people that have the IgM peripheral neuropathy. I think this is really a wonderful opportunity. There's also the ability to use BTK inhibitors to treat patients who have Bing-Neal syndrome. This is when the disease gets into the central nervous system in the brain. And because these drugs can actually cross into the brain, they actually are very, very active. So as we look at even these individual morbidities that go with Waldenstrom's, let me just say that having these drugs now opens up opportunities for treating these um, uh, problems in ways that we couldn't have imagined just even a few years ago. And with that, I just want to thank uh, Dr. Messner and the Cancer Connect for bringing us all together. And uh, I am looking forward to the Q&A session uh, to follow. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Trion. That was really outstanding. And um, only questions for you, I'm sure, um, for all of us, because thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and our next uh, speaker is uh, is uh, Dr. Andrew Brannigan. Dr. Brannigan is um attending physician, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Brannigan will be addressing follow-up care, including tracking emerging treatments for WM, key questions to ask your healthcare team about treatment, when to seek a second opinion, and quality of life concerns, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and prepared list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brannigan. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and, and especially for the opportunity to speak to you all. And it's been such a pleasure to listen to all the other speakers. And I also look forward to the um, Q&A session. So um, uh, you tasked me with a few topics to cover. They're all very important topics. And I thought I'd start with the second opinion topic. And I think this is an important one. Um, I think we should all remember Waldenstrom's as a rare disease, and most oncologists around the world don't see a whole lot of Waldenstrom's. And so, uh, thank goodness there's experts like you heard today on the call who, who focus on this disease and really keep up with this rapidly evolving field of, of how to care for patients with Waldenstrom's and come up with treatments. So, the, I think the short answer is it's never a bad idea to get a second opinion. And critical times tend to be um, at the time you're first diagnosed, uh, when treatment is being considered, or if you have a bothersome sim symptom, like Dr. Ansel uh, had mentioned uh, as examples. And um, uh, another topic was uh, telehealth. And this actually, I think, with, with the pandemic uh, going on, 
we're seeing more and more telehealth. And I know at Mass General, we're trying to expand our capabilities to even do international telehealth visits. So that's probably going to be more to come in the near future. Um, how you find second opinions, the IWMF has a great resource with, with a list of physicians that they vet and know are experienced with Waldenstrom, so that's one a great resource. Um, if you are doing a telehealth visit, this is one of the topics, and I just wanted to say a few words about that. Uh, you want to make sure you have a, a camera and a microphone attached to your computer. You, you do want to test it out ahead of time. And uh, whatever hospital you're doing the appointment with will have, will have tech support. So you want to try it out, make sure it works so you have a more productive visit. Um, you definitely want to have a well-lit area. Um, try to avoid using a artificial background so that you can see uh, your provider on the screen and they can see you. And also, it's a good opportunity to bring a loved one. Um, I think particularly in the pandemic, there's a lot of restrictions with bringing visitors into the hospital. And one advantage of the telehealth is you can uh, have a have a loved one right there with you, and they should actually sit right next to you, not hide behind the the screen or the couch. Um, and you want to log on a bit early, um, you know, so you're ready and make sure everything works. And sometimes you can even be seen early, um, which which is an advantage. Um, and the next important uh, topic was quality of life. I think this is critically important because when you have Waldenstrom's, you still want to uh, uh, enjoy your life as much as possible. Uh, and, it, and it usually is uh, possible. And so important factors to think of when you think of quality of life are, one, the disease itself. So, so what is Waldenstrom's causing, and how is that affecting your life? Are there symptoms that are bothersome? And for the example we heard about with neuropathy, uh, sometimes this can be very mild, very slowly progressive. It doesn't always need it to be treated right away. It's very subjective. So really it's up to you. Uh, to know your body and to speak up when it is time, uh, and that's very helpful for the providers to know that this is this is just interfering with my life too much. I don't I, I don't want this to get any worse, and that could be a time to treat. Um, sometimes the treatments themselves can interfere with quality of life. We heard a little bit about some of the side effects. Um, uh, you know, there's always some sort of side effect with with drugs. They seem to be getting better and better as we get more and more targeted therapies. Uh, but for some people, they might experience a, a side effect in a different way, and it might just be intolerable. So you want to speak up about that. Um, on those same lines are supportive care. So um, one really important part of Waldenstrom's is the risk for infections. And you really want to watch out for infections. A lot of people have a low protective antibody levels that comes with the disease. That can actually get worse with some of the infections. Uh, so sometimes you need preventative uh, antibiotics, antimicrobials to prevent things like shingles that can be reactivated during treatment. Sometimes actually uh, IVIG or intravenous immunoglobulins can be helpful in patients that have very low levels of, of immunoglobulins or that have frequent infections. Um, and also you want to get routine vaccinations um, uh, uh, like for uh, pneumonia, influenza, and importantly now, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, a COVID-19 vaccine. And so that brings me to the last topic I want to cover, which is COVID-19. And, and just to remind everyone, I said that there's an increased risk of infections. Um, you can even think of Waldenstrom's and, and types of diseases like Waldenstrom's as cancers of the immune system. Because the cells themselves that are the Waldenstrom cells 
our immune cells that are supposed to make good antibodies. So there's a lot of interruptions to normal immune function. And we do know that there's an increased risk of getting infections. Uh, when Waldensum's patients get infections, they can be more severe. And sometimes vaccines do not work as well based from uh, experience with other vaccines in the past. So what we don't know because these COVID-19 vaccines are fairly new is how well do they work? So I would urge everyone to have a little bit of caution and don't just assume you have uh, full protection uh, if you have Waldenstrom's because these initial studies were done on healthy volunteers that did not have Waldenstrom's. We are starting to see some studies and data come in that not everybody uh, with blood cancers, including Waldenstrom's, have protection. And so because of that, um, this is something I'm passionate about. I think preventing infections is so important. Uh, uh, we have a study that I'm running, uh, and it's open at Mass General and at Dana-Farber in Boston, uh, and we're looking at responses to COVID-19 vac COVID vaccines in patients with Waldenstrom's. And so we have started um, collecting blood samples, and we uh, have some folks that we tested before they even got their vaccine, and then we can see after whether it's one or two doses, depending on the vaccine type, how their response was. Now, another important um, uh, part of an immune response is how durable is that response? Uh, because it might be that um, uh, protection uh, can be seen, but then it, it's, then it is lost. And this is something that uh, we've seen, for example, with influenza. And so we're going to look at immune responses over an entire year. And when I say immune responses, we're trying to be comprehensive because um, many of these vaccines were designed to elicit an antibody response. And that is important. That can neutralize um, uh, the ability of, of a coronavirus to come in and cause an infection. However, that's really uh, only part of our immune uh, repertoire to prevent infections. There's a whole other um, part of the immune system called the cellular immune system. And this has to do with the white blood cells that circulate through our body that can actually fight off infections themselves. So what we plan to do is look at a very comprehensive antibody response, but also um, uh, cellular or T-cell-based responses. And uh, that's interesting, uh, and we have some evidence that um, for other infections, including the first SARS coronavirus outbreak that was in uh, 2000 three, if everybody remembers that, um, uh, vaccines were, were able to elicit, um, uh, or after somebody got uh, infected with those, antibody responses lasted only a short time. Uh, but the T cell responses, so the specific white cells that could fight off the coronavirus, lasted up to six years. And so really our long-term memory response is very tied into other factors besides antibodies. So it may be that certain COVID-19 vaccines trigger more uh, long-term protection than others. It may be uh, they, they work better in people with blood cancers and particularly Waldenstrom's. And so if anybody's interested in that vaccine, I'm sure you could um, uh, get my email address from Cancer Care. Uh, and, and it would be only people that could make arrangements to actually come in person to have blood drawn because the cells have to be alive to do the immune studies. So um, uh, thanks for, uh, uh, my, for all of your attention, and I 
I think I should end here so we have some time for the Q&A sessions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Brannigan. That was really outstanding and very interesting in terms of uh, the study you're doing in terms of vaccines. So thank you. Really fascinating. Thank you very much. Um, and our next speaker is uh, Mr. Peter Denardis. Mr. Denardis is IMWF Chair of the Board of Trustees, um, the International WM Foundation, and he will be addressing IWF's free programs and um, give you information about their contact information. And also you'll be getting all that information also at the end of the program of getting a survey monkey about um, to fill out evaluation, but we'll also be giving you all sorts of information um, that, uh, that we've given you during the program that we think would be helpful to you to have links to different sites and of course to IWF definitely. Um, so it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Denardis. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's my honor to participate in today's discussion and to speak to fellow WMers worldwide. Uh, I'd like to first thank uh, Cancer Care for coordinating this webinar for the global WM community. Uh, their efforts on behalf of WMers are very much appreciated. And I'd especially like to extend our gratitude to Drs. Ansel, Brannigan, Castillo, and Trion for their continued dedication to everyone affected by WM and for their taking their time out of their busy schedules to talk to all of us today on this very important topics. Uh, the information provided by the doctors so far gives us all hope for the future and is a guide for all of us, regardless of our current WM situation. I'd like to encourage everyone listening today to continue to stay abreast of the latest developments regarding WM, and the best way to do so is by taking advantage of the services provided by the IWMF. The IWMF is the only organization dedicated specifically to providing education and support to patients, caregivers, family and friends affected by WM, while also promoting much needed research specific to the disease. While it is headquartered in the US, there are affiliates spanning the globe, encompassing over 25 countries, along with a strong network of over 60 support groups in the US alone. The services provided range from support groups, volunteers answering questions by phone and email, online email and Facebook-based discussion groups, a quarterly magazine, The Torch, that provides in-depth articles about WM, a weekly WM-specific news bulletin, periodic webinars on WM-specific topics, encouraging stories of hope written by fellow patients and caregivers, and an annual education forum where we can all gather together as a community not to mention over $20 million in funding for research over the years that just wouldn't take place were it not for that funding. So I encourage all of you to take advantage of the IWMF-provided services by visiting the website, iwmf.com, to become educated and engaged WM patients and caregivers, and to help each other in our journey towards a better future with WM and eventually a cure for the disease. And of course, always consult with your physician. Best of health to all. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Mrs. Arnis. And actually, um, we will be sending everyone that information as well. And, and we we cannot thank you enough for the work that you do and how much you have advanced um, the treatment and research in this in, of WM. So thank you so much and all the services you provide, of course. And I, I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care. Um, so. Um, Unlike WM or the IWMF, um, our services are for all uh, cancer patients, and including people with WM. Um, we do offer all of our services free, national in scope, 
and they're provided by oncology social workers. Um, so we offer practical and financial and co-payment assistance. We also have a particular funds designated for people struggling with COVID as well. Um, we also um, offer um, online support groups. Uh, we offer uh, case management. Really, um, if we don't have the resource, we will virtually take you to a place that does those, that has those resources and get you connected to them. And we also offer these workshops, and we also have publications. And um, and you can either call us on our 800 number, our Hope Line, or visit our website. Um, now, with that being said, before we move on to the Q&A, I'd like to just ask you just a few questions to see um, um, uh, what your experience has been on the call today. So um, again, it will take like probably two minutes to do that. So I'm going to start um, with the first question. And the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the importance of frontline treatment for Waldenstrom's in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about my knowledge of the treatment for relapsed refractory WM. One is the highest rating, five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in my knowledge of the importance of new and emerging treatment approaches for WM. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. So the next one is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in working with my healthcare team to manage symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort and pain, including reducing complications in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The last question. <clears throat> As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for WM. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in the questions here. That's really helped, again, us to know um, how we can improve these programs going forward. And because we work in collaboration with IWMF, all of our information will be shared with this wonderful organization as well. And now I'm going to ask uh, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So I'm going to ask Norma to explain to all of you to queue up for online questions. And Norma, if you could do that, thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a number of questions um, online from all of you, so um, I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Ansel, the first question. 
What research is being done in the use of mRNA or CRISPR to fight WM? Uh, happy to answer that question. So um, a, a number of, uh, of different studies uh, are being done, and uh, I think the key thing is obviously to identify genes that are critical for the survival of a Waldenstrom cell, and then obviously to edit those, cell, those uh, genes that may be aberrant out and replace them with a normal functioning gene as a mechanism uh, for potential therapies. And I think we're learning a lot that mRNA approaches uh, and CRISPR approaches are highly effective for this. So um, Dr. Trion and Dr. Castillo mentioned uh, some of the pathways that have been studied and some of the targeted agents that are being looked at. So those are chemical approaches, many of them, to uh, address these uh, genetic abnormalities and signaling abnormalities. But similarly, strategies are being done to actually identify genetic vulnerabilities and pathways that could be further targeted uh, or corrected uh, using these kinds of approaches, so there are actually a lot of uh, a lot of work being done in this space uh, to try and understand the disease to a greater degree, and as was mentioned, create other therapies that could be used. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, the next question is for Dr. Brannigan. Given that the actual efficacy of the COVID vaccines for persons with WM and blood cancers are still under review, are the CDC guidelines regarding activities such as socializing with other vaccinated persons indoors safe to follow? Or should WM patients be adhering to stricter guidelines? Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, and and these, these types of questions are always so hard to answer as we're constantly evolving uh, back to a new normal after you know uh, we be, were vaccinated. Um, so you know the the the, the short answer is we, we we don't know because we don't know how effective the vaccines are. It might be that there's um, partial protection. It might be that a subset of patients get full protection. Um, it might be that that uh, more patients get protection than we fear. Uh, but because we don't know, I think some degree of caution is in order and. Uh, uh, but life has to go on, uh, you know, and I think I tell my patients, you still have to be able to live your life. And, um, uh, you know, having small gatherings with other people who are vaccinated is probably fairly safe because those other people, uh, I'm assuming, don't all have Waldenstrom's unless you're going to a Waldenstrom's party. Uh, uh, but then, you know, in fact, the other people are probably uh, quite protected. So that would be somewhat safe. But Hopefully, there'll be some more specific guidance for uh, patients with cancer and blood cancers as, as this uh, pandemic evolves. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Castillo. Have any of the physicians had WM patients who experience excessive weight loss and night sweats when all blood panels do not indicate any WB markers? Uh, you mean WM markers? Is it WB? Yes, it should be WM markers. Sorry about that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, not a problem. So, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the main reasons we have to treat patients with Waldenstrom's is typically anemia, and that comes with fatigue and tiredness. Uh, there is a group of people uh, or patients who do have what we call constitutional symptoms in the absence of anemia or other problems. Uh, that is not very common, but we have seen it, you know, every once in a while, uh, these constitutional symptoms are typically uh, fevers with no clear infectious origin. Sometimes they have to do with uh, night sweats, drenching night sweats. That happens most nights, and also unintentional weight loss. 
when we think about unintentional weight loss, uh, it's not just a couple of pounds weight loss. It's more of a, you know, 10 to 15% of the weight of a patient, right? So if a patient is about 150 pounds, then we're talking about anywhere between 15 and 20 pounds weight loss over a matter of three to six months for us to be worried about the weight loss being maybe in some connection to the, uh, to the disease. So we do have situations in which patients do have constitutional symptoms in the absence of anemia or, or other problems. Um, and in those scenarios, obviously, they need to be considered for potential treatment in, in initiation. Um, obviously, that is a kind of a case-by-case -case type of situation. Excellent. Thank you. And um question uh, for Dr. Trion. Do any of these issues differ for variations of Waldenstrom's, like Bing-Neal? If you could explain that a bit. Carolyn, can you repeat that question? I just want to make sure I Yes, certainly. Uh, do any of these issues differ for variations of Waldenstrom's, like Bing-Neal? Uh, yeah, Bing -B -I -N -G. I'm not really sure what, what the... Um, what the individual asking the question uh, is alluding to, but um, if they're asking about genomics, can you know variations in the underlying genomics of the Waldenstrom cell help explain the different ways Waldenstrom's can present itself? Um, the, the answer is yes. We know that CXCR4 mutations actually affect where these cells go. Um, patients that have the CXCR4 mutation tend to have less disease outside of their bone marrow. It tends to traffic to the bone marrow more. So you don't see the uh, lymph nodes or spleen being enlarged as much as you do, um, you know, in, in patients who don't have CXCR4 mutations. That being said, what dictates the tropism where these cells go uh, for being Neal syndrome, as an example, I think we, we don't understand yet. There hasn't really been full genome sequencing effort done on these particular cells. We do know from the work that was done in France that, you know, they carried the mid-88 mutation. Um, and uh, as a result, this is why you can use a drug like ibrutinib to actually uh, treat being Neal syndrome. But there's uh, a lot more questions that we have about the underlying mechanisms uh, for these um, site-specific uh, Waldenstrom cells that I think will be answered um, once we get, you know, better genomic sequencing data. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal um, on today's program. And I want to thank our participants um, for asking such great questions. So thank you all. Um, it's really been amazing. Um, and um, as I wrap this program up, um, I just want to remind all of you that I recognize that there are many more questions in queue, both on the telephone online, that we're not able to access, um, um, of course, um, during the, uh, this particular program. And so I want to comment on that. Um, um, I want to comment on that just a bit. Um, so um, if you asked a question today, or if you um, had a question you wanted to ask and didn't get to ask it, but heard another comment made or heard something on the call that you thought might apply to you. Um, then um, 
I suggest that you take what you learned today and the questions, even those who asked questions today, that you take this back to your treating healthcare team because they will then, of course, be able to, um, you know, they'll be able to address the questions as they apply to you because they have all the information about each of you, of course, all the details. We never want to sidestep your treating healthcare team. And I also want to recommend that the IWF is just a wonderful resource for all of you. And as I mentioned earlier, at the end of the program, you'll be getting a SurveyMonkey evaluation, probably tomorrow, actually. And that evaluation will include the link, all the information, the website, the phone numbers for IWF, which is really a terrific resource for all of you. And for those of you who are not connected and not getting all of their resources, I strongly recommend you do. Their Torch magazine is wonderful. Their emails are fantastic. That's a wonderful resource for all of you. And then um, I also would want to suggest that um, I don't want any one of you to feel when you leave the call today, you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of really an extraordinary community of support, the WMers, the WM community. It's huge. It's global. And um, I think... Um, we want to be sure that you stay connected. Um, and I, I want you to particularly connect with the um, IWMF. It's a wonderful resource. Please contact Cancer Care if there are services I mentioned that could be of use to you as well. I want to thank you all for your participation today. And uh, I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a wonderful day.